He approached him in the cover of night, away from all the crowds, away from the unclean masses looking for healing, but most of all, away from the other Pharisees. Something he'd, he'd never really felt before compelled Nicodemus to walk through that dark night. Although the religious establishment couldn't see it, or at least they wouldn't acknowledge it, he was able to muster up enough courage to go and tell Jesus what he knew. Well, at least he, he had enough courage to do it in the dead of night. Nicodemus walked forward, and with a trembling voice, he told Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Lifting up their eyes from the fire, his disciples grew silent, and Jesus fixed his gaze on Nicodemus' face. No one had ever looked like, at Nicodemus like this before. You know, he was, he was used to being viewed with respect by his fellow Pharisees, and he was even used to being viewed with fear by the peasants who saw him walking down the street with his long robes and his phylacteries, but no one had ever looked at him like this. No one had ever looked at him as though they saw straight through him. A moment passed, but it may as well have been an eternity, and finally Jesus spoke. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus, like many of us, he'd been spending hours imagining exactly how this conversation was going to go. Now, perhaps Jesus would invite him into his inner circle, or better yet, perhaps Nicodemus would be able to introduce Jesus to his, his inner circle of Pharisees. I mean, wouldn't that be something? But of the 10,000 scenarios that he had imagined, none of them played out like this. Stumbling for words, he asked, <laughs> how, how can a man be born when he is old? What's he going to do, enter a second time into his mother's womb? He looked at the 12 disciples, hoping for a chuckle, some sign of support, but they just looked back at the fire. Unless you are born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, Jesus continued. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. The only thing darker than the night sky was Nicodemus' mind. I mean, how could Jesus say this to him? Him, Nicodemus, like the, the Pharisee the one who had memorized the Torah from when he was a boy. He was well-respected by the community, accepted by the Pharisees, a faithful husband and father, a hard worker, a man of high reputation. How could Jesus say that he, Nicodemus, could not see the kingdom of God? How can these things be? He asked. Jesus replied, Are you a teacher in Israel? and yet you don't understand these things. Stumbling back through the dark night, Nicodemus could hardly pay attention to his steps as he kept playing the words back over and over again. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The horizon began its slow transition from its seemingly infinite darkness to a blood-red hue when he arrived home. The dawn had not yet given birth to the day, but light was coming. So it was hard, to say the least, to figure out how to start this message. So there are certain terms um, that, that are just so bogged down by religious jargon that using them can sometimes be less helpful than helpful, you know? Like terms like born again, or evangelical, or gospel or disciple. I mean, could any of your non-Christian neighbors actually define any of these terms for you? I mean, how much of their understanding is informed by the media or by politics or by bad experiences with Christianity? 
But when we come to a passage like what we have in front of us today in 1 Peter, that sort of language is unavoidable. So let's remind ourselves for a moment who Peter is writing to. He's writing to people who are suffering. They're experiencing emotional and physical loss. They've been pushed out to the edges of society, and some of them have lost houses, families, homes, communities, you name it. So how does Peter write to encourage such a sorry bunch of people? Well, he reminds them over and over again that what they have lost is nothing compared to the spiritual riches that they have gained. And so the metaphor that Peter uses for us today in this passage is the metaphor of new birth. And what I'm going to argue today is that the new birth is essential to the Christian life. Not just to get converted, but to all of the Christian life. Because for Peter, Christianity is not a religion. It is a new and completely different way of life. And so we'll see that it is a life rooted in God's word. It's, it's rooted in the good news about Jesus. And it is a life that is spiritually fulfilled and always growing in love. And I know that's a lot to take in at 10 till 11, but here we go. Um, here's, here's how we're going to approach this idea. We're going to ask three questions. Why do we need to be born again? How are we born again? And what happens when you're born again? And Peter does a great job of answering all three of these for us. So let's start with why we need to be born again. Um, there's at least three reasons that Peter gives us. First is that there's, just, there's something wrong with all of humanity. Um, and there are lies. The second thing is there's lies that we all intuitively believe. And then we're born again for the sake of love. So verse 22, let's read it together again. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, when Peter uses this word here, purified, he's, he's evoking the image of like a ritualistic cleansing in order for you to go to a temple service for, for worship, okay? But at least for me, like that's, that's interesting. But for me, the big question is, purified from what? Purified from what? And it's interesting to me that nearly every belief system in the world has to deal with guilt to some extent or another. You know, we see this in the, the ancient practices of pagan religions where they have their animal sacrifice systems and some of them have human sacrifice systems. Um, we see it in the way even that modern people try to deal with guilt through any number of things. And I know I'm going to open a can of worms here, but modern people deal with it through food, through sex, through self-justifying social media posts. You all have seen it. We're not going to dive into all of that explicitly, but hopefully you'll understand more as we go. And basically, like modern secular culture, ever since the time of Friedrich Nietzsche, the, the atheistic philosopher in the late 1800s, secular culture has suggested that what humans need to do is just sort of outgrow our guilt by outgrowing our sense of primitive religion. Like we just need to distance ourselves from it because it's such an ancient, pre-modern, stupid thing. Now, this is sort of a silly example, but um, shortly after I became a Christian in college, there, were, there, were, uh, there was this service we did. This is like, this is an ancient history, but it was the pre-Uber days, where we would get together, uh, a group of us, and just go and drive the streets of Fort Collins and pick up drunk college students and make sure they had a safe ride home. Now, it was, it was just a, a way to serve and love the community, a way to do outreach, that sort of thing. And... We would have these nights where like these stony-faced, no pun intended, college students would get in the car, both men and women, and they just, they just presented this hard exterior. They were kind of, you know, they, they wanted the ride, but they were sort of annoyed that it was a bunch of Christians giving it to them. But so many of them, even on the short rides home, would eventually break down and start crying in the back of my 93 Chrysler Concorde. Now, obviously, like they were inebriated, but... For those of you who know me, like, you know that I'm not the sort of person who's going to lay guilt on people really hard. It didn't take much 
for the surface to crack. I mean, if anything, our mere presence and what we were doing with our Friday and Saturday nights had an effect on these people. But I was always struck by the fact that so many of them had these intense feelings of guilt as, as we're spending just even a few minutes with them. They're just breaking down, weeping in the back of my car. And what I'm suggesting to you is that modern secular culture is like a drunk college student. And you just get them drunk, put them in the back of a Chrysler, and all the cracks show up, okay? <laughs> so make no mistake about it. Like, modern people, secular people, they struggle with guilt as much as the ancients did, as much as any human in all of human history has. And if pure secularism is true, then why in the world do people feel this way? And I'd argue, basically, it's because pure secularism is not true. You know, people intuitively know that they live in a modern universe and that deep down in some way or another, they know there's, there's just something deeply, deeply wrong. In them, with them, there's something wrong in this world and they know that. And so if we go to the Bible and ask the Bible what is wrong with humanity, the answer you get from a passage like Romans 1.25 is that people have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And so the problem with humanity, the problem is that we have all swallowed this deadly lie. And so the cure is to get new life by being born again. And so we read in verse 22 that people are not just purified here in a vacuum, but they are purified by your obedience to the... You guys have Bibles, come on. Truth purified by your obedience to the truth. If we are purified by obeying the truth, then it stands to reason that we are defiled by obeying a lie. And so what is that lie? As we read last week in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, it says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Um, remember, these, these churches are made up of a bunch of former pagans who were confronted with the message of Jesus, and then they turned away from their idolatrous gods and turned to Jesus for their salvation. You know, they heard the truth of the gospel, and they obeyed by believing it. They used to believe the lies of paganism, but now they believe the truth about Jesus. They were purified by obeying the truth. And so really, it's not all that different for us today. Like, the problem with humanity is not so much that we no longer believe that we need salvation, but rather it's that we, we want to find salvation in anything besides God. Okay? So in ancient times, you know, the idea was, well, I'll just appeal to this spiritual deity to assuage my guilt or give me blessing or comfort me in this trial that I'm going through. But modern people do the same thing, right? Like, don't we look for blessing and meaning in, in things? We've just cut out the middleman at this point. Like, we look for things like accolades, approval, achievement. We look for it through things like money, sex, and power. And let's just say, like, if you're not someone who struggles like this, <laughs> if you're not someone who looks for your identity in, in approval and accolades and achievement, you are the exception and not the rule, and you should be up here talking to everybody. But as all of you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of a good Tim Keller quote, and he put it like this. He writes, This is the humbling truth that lies at the heart of Christianity. We love to be our own saviors. Our hearts love to manufacture glory for themselves. So we find messages of self-salvation extremely attractive. Whether they're religious, as in keep these rules and you'll earn eternal blessing, or secular, you know, grab hold of these things, grab hold of money, sex, power, etc., and you'll experience blessing in the here and now. And so the tragedy here is that when we're trying to save ourselves, whether in a religious or a secular context, it actually leaves very little bandwidth for us to love God and love other people. We lose focus on what we were originally designed to do. And so that leads us to the third thing, like we're born again for the sake of love. So you put verse 22, which we've read this morning, together with what we've read over the last couple weeks, and you'll see that what Peter is telling his readers is when he's saying, be holy as the Lord is holy, or when he's saying, be sober-minded, or when he's saying, fear the Lord, what he's saying is love. <laughs> 
love each other? You know, how are these spiritual refugees supposed to live in a world that doesn't understand them and is hostile to their way of life? I mean, for crying out loud, how are we supposed to live in the year 2020? We, as it says here, are to have a sincere brotherly love and to love one another from a pure heart. You know, anyone in here know a Phillies fan? Hands up. Okay, like two people, that's too bad. I know you know who I'm talking about too. Um, I had a roommate years and years ago who was a Phillies fan and it's ironic that Philadelphia is called the city of brother, brotherly love. Years ago at a Rockies game, let's just say him and every other Phillies fan in there, the sense you did not get from them was brotherly love, <laughs> okay? Uh, it's just true of all of them. I hate generalizations, but that one is 100% true. The, the idea of brotherly love here being sincere conveys the idea that it is love without pretense, love without hypocrisy, love that is heartfelt and genuine. As one commentator put it, this is not brotherly love, but brother love. It's not love these people like they are your brother, but love these people because they are your brothers and sisters. And so, there's this call to love each other from a pure heart. And, and the word here, kind of at the end of the verse, for love is the one that a lot of us here are familiar with, agapeo. And so for early Christians, it was Jesus himself who defined what this sort of love looks like through his sacrifice. And so today, if you, like, honestly, jot this one down. Like, this is a great follow-up. We're not going to get into it today. But just read 1 John 3, verses 14 through 18. Maybe just read all of 1 John Sunday, might as well use it to read your Bible. Um, but use it, like look at this passage and see what love looks like. But let me summarize it with one of the commentators here again. He said this, this love is a self-sacrificing desire to meet the needs of others that finds expression in practical acts. I'll say it again. You probably still won't be able to write it down, but I'll say it again. This love is a self-sacrificing desire to meet the needs of others that finds expression through practical acts. So in Ravi Zacharias' book, Can Man Live Without God? He tells the story of a young Yugoslavian evangelist named Yaakov. Um, Yaakov arrived in this certain village where he found an older man named Simmerman, and he commiserated with Simmerman over his tragedies and suffering. You know, Yaakov tried to tell him about the love of Christ, but Simmerman interrupted Yaakov and told him that he wanted nothing to do with Christianity. He reminded Yaakov of the dreadful history of the church in Yugoslavia, a history filled with plundering, exploitation, and even murder. My own nephew was killed by them, he said angrily. They wear those elaborate coats and caps and crosses signifying a heavenly commission, but I know who they really are. Yaakov paused for a moment, then said, Simmerman, can I ask you a question? Suppose I stole your coat, put it on, and broke into a bank. Suppose that the police saw me running in the distance and they could not catch up with me, but they recognized your coat. What would you say to them if they came to your house and accused you of breaking into the bank? Well, I would, I would deny it said Simmerman. Ah, but we saw your coat, they would say, replied Yaakov. And this analogy obviously annoyed Simmerman, and he told Yaakov to just go home. Yaakov continued to return to that village periodically over the years, just to befriend Simmerman, encourage him, and share the love of Christ with him. Finally, one day, Simmerman asked him, how does one become a Christian? And Yaakov taught him, taught him that the simple steps of repentance for sin and trust in the work of Jesus Christ, and he gently pointed him to the shepherd of his soul. Simmerman bent his knee on the soil, and with his head bowed, he surrendered his life to Christ. As he rose to his feet, wiping his tears, he embraced Yaakov and said, thank you for being in my life. And then he pointed to the heavens and whispered, you wear his coat very well. This persistent type of love has been a feature of the church since its inception. 
You know, we read in the book of Acts chapter 4 verse 34 that there wasn't a needy person among the early Christians for they all sold whatever they had in order to support the needs of whoever needed anything. Um, a couple hundred years later in a slightly more cheeky way, uh, Tertullian, the church father, put it like this. He said, Christians, uh, he compared Christians to their pagan society and he said this, that basically Christ, the, the pagans share nothing except their wives and the Christians share everything but their wives. <laughs> and so on down through Christian history, the born-again followers of Jesus have always been distinguished by their love for one another. Think of John 13. This is how they will know that you're my disciples. Their ability to see the needs of others as more significant than their own and their joy in meeting those needs in a hurting world, that's the sort of love that Peter is driving at here. And so the question we have to ask ourselves right now is how does our love look? Like, do you sense that sort of love with the people in your life group or do you just feel like you kind of have to put up with them from time to time? Or within this church body, do you have a sense of sacrificial love towards brothers and sisters who share the Lord's table with you every single week? Because as we see here, love, love defined by the Bible is not merely the presence of warm emotions. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't include Christian warmth, sincere brotherly love that was literally the words beforehand, but it goes beyond just warmth and congeniality. Love, biblically defined, is the decision of the will to sacrifice for the needs of others. And so this has always been the impossibly high calling of Christianity, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Like, just say that to yourself every day for a week and see what it does to you. So how are we supposed to live like this? How are we supposed to love like this? What seed produces the fruit of this kind of love? So that leads us to our second main thing, which is how are we born again? Second question, how are we born again? We'll see it happens again. A lot of threes today, this is how I do things. We'll see that it happens to grass, that it is supernatural, and that it happens because of the word of God. So look with me in verse 23. It says this, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Now what's interesting here is that Peter can tell his readers to love in these extraordinary ways because they have already been born again. He's not saying start loving in this way so that you can be born again. Instead, he's saying love this way since you have already been born again. And does this matter? Am I just getting pedant pedantic? Pedantic? I don't know. The pedants in here will tell me which one to say later. Is it just pedantic to say this? No, because those two ideas are a world apart from each other. So over the past 30 or 40 years, the term born-again Christian has kind of been treated like it's a type of Christianity among other types of Christianity. So like you have the Presbyterians over in this wing, the Baptists are over there swimming around, the Lutherans sit really quietly over there in their own room, and then the, the born-again room is like the loudest room in the house, right? But here's how the Bible treats the term born-again. Being born again is not a room in the house of Christianity. It is the house. So we already quoted Jesus in his interaction with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. This is kind of where we started today when he says, unless you've been born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. But he's not the only one who talks like this. Like James, uh, in James chapter 1 verse 18, he says, of his own will, he brought us forth. He gave us birth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, he says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So Peter, James, John, Paul, Jesus. 
Every single person in the New Testament talks about this need to be born again or to be regenerated or recreated, and really it's all the same idea. So for the biblical authors to keep saying that we need to be born again or we need to be regenerated or renewed or whatever it might be, what kind of people do you think they have in mind? And this is actually, again, why I started our morning with the telling of the story of Nicodemus, because you know when it comes to like the pimps and the prostitutes, the drug addicts, the degenerates and the gangsters, when it comes to morally flawed people, just about everybody's okay with the fact that they need to have some sort of spiritual transformation in their lives. But for a lot of people, like being born again, this term, it just, it's kind of used often, it's interchangeable with like getting religion in their lives. So maybe this happened to some of you guys when you first became a Christian. Your friends would say, oh, you're, you're not like one of those born-again Christians, are you? Or perhaps you've overheard people at a coffee shop or a restaurant talk about a friend who converted to Christ, and they say something like, oh yeah, he, he doesn't really party with us anymore, not since he found religion. Does being born again simply mean that you're a more moral and religious person? Well, look at Nicodemus. I mean, the guy was a Pharisee. He was one of the most religious people in one of the most religious times in all of human history. As a Pharisee, he would have to fast multiple times a week. He would have all five books of Moses committed to memory. Try that with Leviticus. He would be a well-respected religious scholar in his community, okay? And yet Jesus turns to this guy and he says, you need to be born again. Now, don't get me wrong here, the pimps and prostitutes, they need to be born again too, but why is that? Let me appear to change the subject for a second. Um, what does Mount Everest look like from the moon? Nothing. <laughs> it looks like any other part of this green, blue, and white marble floating in space, right? But for you and me, you know, we see someone standing at sea level, and we see another person on the top of Mount Everest, and we say, my goodness, that person is a lot higher up than that person. But you get outside of Earth's orbit for just a moment, and you'll see that our achievements are relatively minor when you put them on the cosmic scale. And so this, consequently, is actually why this whole self-salvation thing that we talked about earlier would be laughable if it weren't so tragic. So when God looks down at Nicodemus, who tried to save himself through his religion, or when he looks down at the drug addict, who tries to save herself through a drug-induced escape from their circumstances, one is on Everest, the other's at sea level. How does it look to God? It looks like grass. Okay? He sees grass. Verse 24. For all flesh, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, we'll return to this quotation from Isaiah 40 a little later on, but I just want you to notice this. We need to be born again, all of us, because from God's perspective, not only are we any, hardly any different from each other, we're barely different from the grass. And so the second thing we notice here about the new birth is that it is supernatural. Peter tells us, as we read again from verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. What's Peter's point here? What he's saying is that all of humanity, from Adam on downward, we have all swallowed the lie and we've swallowed the death curse. Okay, and now, because death is part of all of our equation, we protect ourselves. We protect our interests. We hoard wealth to ourselves. We accumulate accolades. We try to make a name for ourselves that we hope will last beyond our years because intuitively every single one of us knows that there's going to be a day where we will die. And so from one perspective, it actually makes a ton of sense that humans act in this self-interested way because why would I sacrifice for others if at the end of my days, I'm just going to die. Like if death is the end game, what's in this for me? Very little. So let me just protect me and mine and we'll be good. But that's precisely the point here. Flesh is like grass 
So in order to have the type of love and life that God calls us to, we need some sort of supernatural resurrection. And so only if we can truly hope that the end of our lives is not truly the end of our lives, will we ever find the internal strength and the internal power to live in these sort of self-sacrificial ways. So the New Testament makes it clear that in order to experience this new type of life, you need to have some sort of supernatural intervention. In fact, you essentially need to be recreated. You need to be born again. And so the immortal God steps in. Let me ask you this. Um, what did you do in order to be born? Nothing. <laughs> you had no control over it. You had you did not dictate your own birthday. You did not choose to be conceived. You had nothing to do in the planning or process of being born. You were just part of it. And so it is with every person who is born of the Spirit of God. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus said. But when the wind rushes through the human heart, when this wind, when this spiritual wind rushes through the human heart, it doesn't sound like the wind storms we've been having at night here in Fort Collins the last couple of weeks. Because this voice, or this, this wind, it has a voice. And so we see that we are born again by the word, by the voice of God. And so God's word is the seed of eternal life. God's word was the creative force that spoke the cosmos into existence. So why would it be anything besides God's word that ushers in the new creation? And so I want to illustrate this sort of carefully because I, I'm speaking in generalities here because no one wants me to be up here for three hours. But, but what does like the, the modern American church kind of look like? Like how is it sort of split? And what I'd argue is that the, the church is sort of split along two rails right now, largely speaking. On one side, you have like the sort of mainline progressive Christianity that, that actually does, talks a lot about neighbor love, about caring for the poor, about feeding the hungry, housing the homeless, and all of that. But largely speaking, a lot of these mainline churches, they've distanced themselves from the claims of the miraculous that we find in the Bible. They've, they've even distanced themselves from the ideas of biblical inerrancy. Uh, they've distanced themselves from the foundational teachings of Christianity, like the virgin conception, the atoning work on the cross, and the physical resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Like, these are not all that important on that side of the rail. And then on the other side, what you have is, is a more socially conservative branch of Christianity that does affirm the biblical teachings on the miraculous and the inerrancy of Scripture and the holiness of God and even talks about the new birth. But many of these have reduced Christianity down to a mostly personal salvation experience. So you have like the, the social justice gospel on one hand and the personal salvation gospel on the other. And frankly, the Bible will not let you split the baby like that. The biblical vision for Christianity includes not only the rebirth of, of individuals, of you and me, but the Bible talks about the rebirth of all of the created order. Romans 8 talks about how all of creation is groaning, waiting for the day when the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, to give them credit, progressive Christian organizations do an awful lot of good to help the poor and downtrodden. But how many of them, how many people do you know who go to these types of churches who, can, who would say, like, you know, who, who've had the experience of, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee? And though many doctrinally conservative churches teach about things like the new birth, there is a tendency in these churches to disengage from the culture. Like they, they create their own Christian schools, their own little Christian communities, their Christian ghettos, as some people call them. This should, this should rub people the wrong way. They're Christian safe spaces. And they don't need to be worried about being contaminated by the broader world. But what about Peter's readers? And on the one hand, they're not compromising on the biblical teaching. They're not compromising on, the, on biblical teaching in order to gain broader acceptance by the culture. And on the other hand, even though they've been pushed all the way out to the edges of society, even though they've been extremely marginalized, they're not retreating. 
They understand that their call is to consistently engage with the culture by living faithful lives that are dedicated to the word of God. And so they are, as, as we read at the beginning of this book, they are the elect exiles, the elect exiles of the dispersion. They are God's chosen people, his chosen messengers to a world that is overwhelmed by evil and suffering and death. And they are there to tell people about the good news of Jesus. So what does that look like? And that gets us to our third main point here, which is the result of the new birth. And so what happens when you're born again? We only have two here. One, you put away the old way of life. And two, you become a hungry baby. So read with me in chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The word here to put away refers to taking off and laying aside your clothes. Like it's, it's actually pretty similar to the idea that Paul uses in his writings when he tells us to put off the old self and put on the new self. Like the Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, that sort of thing. And so what is, what is Peter getting at here? Now we've, if I'm right here, and we've been defining love as this community-building, self-sacrificing delight to meet the needs of others. So what's going on with this list? Malice could easily be translated as evil or wickedness. Deceit is lies or trickery that is either designed to harm others or protect yourself which implicitly ends up harming others. Which, as an aside, I don't watch a lot of Friends, but literally every episode I've ever seen, that is the plot. I got a few smiles, so I think I'm right. Hypocrisy is insincerity. It's in contrast here to what we saw in the last chapter about this sincere brotherly love. It is the masking of evil in order to have an outward face of righteousness. Envy is the opposite of thankfulness. It sees what others have, and instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, what envy starts to think is, well, why, why not me? Like, why, why didn't I get the nice job? Why, why don't I have the perfect spouse? Why don't I have the well-behaved kids? Why don't I have the, the nice, healthy body? Envy takes the joy of others, and it turns it into a pity party for yourself. And then there's slander. As opposed to the New Testament teaching about how we're to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, slander is speech that is used to break down, hurt, and harm other people. So do you see what, these, what this list of vices here, do you see what they have in common? As opposed to, to what the New Testament talks about of building up this community, as opposed to the binding power of sacrificial love, this is a list of community-destroying vices. Community-destroying vices. The old humanity is defined by the perishable seed of self-preservation. The new humanity is defined by the imperishable seed of sacrificial love. And so in the new birth, there, there just isn't room for a community that, that gives way, gives room to these types of habits. There's not room in this community for self-interest. And think about it here in the context of marriage, the closest community that we could possibly think of. What will make you more happy? When you put your needs over your spouse or when you put your spouse's needs ahead of your own? Which choice will give you a happy marriage? Which of them will lead to destruction? And bear in mind, I'm talking to both of you. Now, sticking with the marriage analogy here, just think about how God designed it. You, you love each other, you put the needs of one another above each other, um, and you come together and you consummate your love. And what's the result of that? You can explain it to your children later. New life. Babies which oddly enough leads us to the next result of the new birth, which is hungry, hungry babies. Look with me in verses two and three. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
you'll notice here that Peter is indicating two things. Um, on the one hand, we're to be like babies, and on the other hand, we're supposed to grow up into our salvation. And what I am going to argue here is that a baby grows, these spiritual babies grow when they become more hungry. Okay, let me, I'll explain. Okay, let's talk about milk here for a second. Um, there's a couple other verses throughout the Bible that kind of talk about milk as, as spiritual immaturity. Like you need milk, not solid food because you're a, a bunch of babies. That'd be like Hebrews 5, 1 Corinthians 3. Um, but l- let's just be clear here. That's, that's not the analogy. That's not the metaphor that Peter has in mind. Like when Peter uses milk as a metaphor right here, it is entirely positive. So some translators uh, have, have decided to translate this verse as hungering for the pure milk of God's word. I think that'd be in the King James and in the New American Standard. Whereas others say hunger for pure spiritual milk, which is what we have in the ESV. And if you have an NIV, I believe it's in there. And this is honestly just where all my sympathy goes out to the translators because you know, it, could, it could easily be read as either, the way the, way the, the word works. Um, but I think that's actually P- Peter's point. Like, I think, I think it's wordplay. Um, you can't separate a hunger for God from a hunger for his word. There's a type of spiritual experience where, where the mere longing for more of God's presence is in, its, uh, in and of itself satisfying. In Psalm 63, we read this, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David Brainerd, one of my spiritual heroes, says it like this, When I really enjoy God, I feel my desires for him grow all the more insatiable and my thirsting after holiness all the more unquenchable. I feel barren and empty as though I could not live without more of God. Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. Oh, this pleasing pain. Oh, how it makes me press after God. And just like physical babies, these spiritual babies are dependent on someone else to give them food. And so Peter quotes here, at least alludes to Psalm 34. And every hungry soul in here should hear this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So that leads me to a final thought. Um, But it's a long final thought, so don't put your pens down yet. Now, it may come back to bite me here, but I've intentionally saved pointing this, this part out to the very end. Now, look at the very last sentence, the very, very, very last sentence of chapter one. What does it say? It says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. That's a good translation. This living and abiding word of God, this word that causes new birth and sustains spiritual life is the gospel. It is the good news about Jesus itself. Even though this news is 2,000 years old, it is still so, so good. Now, if you are anything like me, if you're anything at all like me, you meditate on a passage like this, you meditate on the sort of love that it's talking about, and you just figure like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. Like, I don't, I don't love like that. I, I don't care about other people like that. I mean, I don't even hunger for God like that. And that's partially the point. Okay, like I I think the real tragedy for many of us Christians is that we have no idea about the riches that are at our disposal. And we've seen this several times in Peter's letter, but look back at chapter 1, verse 4, where we read about this inheritance that is awaiting us, that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Last week we read about the precious blood of Christ, blood that is more precious than silver and gold. What is Peter driving at with this? You know, there's a story of an elderly widow who lived her life just scraping by, eating nearly nothing, almost never using the heat or turning on the electricity because she didn't have money to pay the bills. Then, upon her passing, when, when the movers came to clear out everything, they found a Rembrandt painting hanging on her wall. 
She thought it was just there for decorative purposes. She never paid any attention to it. She had no idea that her poverty could be alleviated in a moment if she just realized what she already possessed. And that's the case with many of us Christians. We have such a hard time loving others. We have such a hard time spending ourselves and sacrificing for the sake of others and meeting their needs because we have no idea of the riches that are just hanging on our wall waiting to be cashed in. Here's what I mean. Many of us are too afraid to love like this because few of us actually believe that we have been loved like this. Many of us are afraid to love like this because few of us actually believe that we have been loved like this. I said earlier that we were going to look at Isaiah 40. Isaiah is writing to exiles and refugees, to God's people when they were homeless, aimless, hopeless, useless, dispersed away from their homes and running short on hope. Not altogether different from the persecuted Christians that Peter is writing to here. They were withering like grass. And after describing all people like grass, later on in the chapter, Isaiah describes God like this. Verse 12, he writes, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance? In verse 29, he says, To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and see. Who created these? Who brings out the stars by number? Who calls them by name, by the greatness of his might? And because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. And so here's the point. This magnificent creator this all-powerful being who created the sun, the moon, the stars, who laid the foundations of the earth, who holds the oceans in the hollows of his hand, this one who made you, this all-powerful being emptied himself of all of that in order to come down here and draw near to you. And why do we preach the gospel every Sunday? Is it because, oh, like there might be some non-Christians here, so we better make sure they hear it? And like, I'm not hiding the ball here. If you're a non-Christian, I want you to believe in Jesus. But is that why we preach the gospel every single week? We preach the gospel to remind you who you belong to and the struggles that he went through in order to get you. The gospel is good news that never grows old. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus happened 2,000 years ago. It is not new news anymore. It is old news, but it is the news that you need to hear every single day if you are going to live the sort of life and have the sort of love that God calls you to. Now, how are you going to live a life filled with sacrifice? How are you going to live a life that is free from the love of money? How are you going to live a life free from fear? And how are you going to live a life free from the desire to constantly have to prove yourself to other people? How are you going to live a life with sincere care and affection for other people? How are you going to live a life as sacrificially as God calls you to? How are you going to do any of this if you forget the news about Jesus coming down from heaven, giving up the riches of his heavenly glory, living as an exile, a homeless man, an itinerant preacher, taking on the violent powers of this world. How are you going to believe any of this unless you see that he was crucified by the very people he came here to love? How will you live like Jesus unless you've seen that he came and did all of this for you? He laid down his life for you. He gave up his glory for you. He was nailed to a cross for you. Also that you could be reunited with him. Also that he could take away your sins, your malice, your deceit, your hypocrisy, your envy, your slander, and replace it with his divine love and his divine life. When Jesus gave up everything, he was given everything. When he died, we died with him. When he was buried, our sins were buried with him. And when he rose, our sins stayed behind and remained dead 
and we receive life and glory and satisfactions of our deepest hungers when he came up from the grave. How will you ever live the sort of sacrificial love that Jesus calls you to without first realizing the sacrificial love that Jesus gives to you? And so what happens when you're born again? Through the living word, through this good news about Jesus, you are given hope. Hope that goes beyond circumstances. Hope that goes beyond suffering. Hope that goes beyond the grave itself. Hope that puts our fears to death and hope that ultimately gives us new life. As Peter himself opened up this letter back in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is good news. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you that you have saved us and redeemed us and purchased us. But we especially thank you that you've given us new life in Jesus we thank you that the grave could not contain him. We thank you that death has no grip on him. We thank you that his life is a life that he lives for us and he lives it forevermore. And that one day, we ourselves will be reunited with him. And so my hope and my prayer for the crossing is that you implant in our hearts the imperishable seed of your word that would become a community of people that so love Jesus and are so gripped by the message of his gospel that our lives look so different from the rest of the world. Not for the sake of holding it over the rest of the world, but for the sake of inviting the world to the feet of Jesus. And so I pray for Albert as he puts together this team. And I ask you to raise up people who are willing to sacrifice to use their time, their money, their treasure in order to serve the weak, the needy, the poor, and the vulnerable. I pray for our own city of Fort Collins. We all, every one of us, see the homeless as we drive by. We don't know what to do, but would you teach us how to live sacrificially? Would you teach us how to engage in meaningful ways with people who need to hear the hope of your gospel? I pray for those who are religiously minded here who have been trying to save themselves through their obedience, through their religious rituals. And I pray they would see that they need to be born again and that Jesus is more than happy to offer them new life. I pray for the love that we express in our body. I personally, I obviously I love this church body so I'm going to commend them, but I pray that our love would grow more and more. That we'd see more sacrificial love more grace, more kindness, more peace as we seek to serve Jesus and make his name known, not only to the world around us, but even to one another as we, as we remind ourselves of his glorious truths. And so God, be with this church body, be with everyone who heard my voice today and through it, hopefully, heard something that went beyond just the mere vibration of vocal cords, but heard your eternal word. Plant that seed deeply, God, and cause it to bear fruit. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.